somewhere between waking and sleeping. On our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door, only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness, venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 56 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, Curious Tales from BordersofSleep.com, created and voiced by your host, Seymour Jacklin. At the website BordersofSleep.com you can find more information, leave feedback, join the email list to stay updated on what I'm up to and the inspiration behind the stories, or find out how to support me to keep writing. It would be lovely to meet you on Facebook too. I love hearing from listeners, however you might get in touch, and I will always try to respond. The soundtrack for this week's episode is by Laura and Sarah. That's from the album Musical Incense Volume 1, which is available from magnitude.com. So, if you are ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. The Cops by Seymour Jacklin Humans rather think that they can write the story of this or that piece of woodland in the landscape. You'll hear folk tell the stories and hear such things as That old grove of sturdy oaks was once part of a much greater hunting estate where the king would ride after wild boar with his nobles. Or so-and-so managed this plantation to supply timber to the great ships in the Napoleonic Wars. But these are mere sketches of any woodland's true story. In most cases, the slow evolution of a forest is longer than any human's life, and the thousands of dark nights that roll through it are not witnessed by the so-called owners, much less the self-appointed historians of the land. But let us nevertheless begin with a preliminary sketch of the planting in question. This copse, at evening, resembled the silhouette of a ship on the horizon, the great masts being fulfilled by the taller trees in its midst, the beech and the ash, which were also the elders of the community. Underneath the full sails of their canopy, the lesser masts and spars of the underwood included hazel and elder, and the deck of the woodland floor was awash with ground elder and creeping tendrils of anemone and celandine. In human terms, the function of the copse was aesthetic. Looking from the windows at the back of the great house, it drew the eye deeper into the land, where the formal gardens gave way to long lawns, and then to rolling parkland and pasture often grazed by sheep. The beech trees were, like so many in England at the time, deliberately placed by humans of a romantic disposition, to enhance the pastoral ambience of the landscape. The rest of the growth arrived by degrees, blown in by the wind or carried into the shelter of the established trees by feathered and four-footed creatures. 
In those days, people took the long view and rightly anticipated that a hundred years later, their foresight in planting would be appreciated by their descendants. But just how much they couldn't have known. In the great house lived a girl and her father, along with a housekeeper and a gardener and his family. But the girl especially needed the cops. It was something to look out upon from the house, where she would spend the many long hours of her days. For you see, she was sickly, and too weak in her limbs to go anywhere under her own power, and she had to be pushed and carried and dressed and sometimes even fed by another. Poor Rowena. The physicians had tried all they could, and nobody knew why nothing could bring the strength to her and give her the life that she should have had. Whenever the weather was fine, she loved to be outdoors, sitting on the terraces in front of the great window of the house, watching the parkland and seeing everything that came and went all that moved and all that grew, each according to the clock of their lives. From the first colours of spring in the flowers that appeared to the last falling brown leaf of autumn, and from the family dramas of the lambing season to the watchful stag scenting the evening air. And when it rained or snowed, Rowena could still watch from the windows as the copse in the distance became a haunting shadow sometimes near and sometimes far through the mists. One spring, when she was in her fifteenth year, Rowena was sitting in her room and looking out towards the familiar outline of the copse. The curtains were drawn aside, pleated and tied on either side of the window. She thought how the view was like a theatre in that hush before the chorus floods the stage and the notes of the first song are sung. The scenery was set against a backdrop of a wide sky and the cut-out shadow of the copse. A few sheep grazed in the foreground, and the thickets of hawthorn that bounded the field were greening. The sheep always looked such a pure white against the green, until the may blossom came out, and then they seemed dirty and grey by comparison. In the winter, when the hawthorns were bare again, the tufts of their wool snagged and drifted upon the thorns became another kind of blossom. As the spring took hold, the sun rose further to the east and earlier, and the may blossom came out sure enough. Not a week later she was begging to be allowed to sit out on the terraces in the sun, for it was warm enough as long as she kept a shawl about her shoulders and a blanket on her knees. As she sat there, closing her eyes and tilting her head back to feel the light on her face. The fragrance of the blossoms came up to the terraces like a bouquet of a thick wine. She let her thoughts fly out over the fields and into the shades of the copse, where the dew still wetted the bark and the morning mist made no hurry to leave. She sought out the very centre where she fancied there was a small clearing, surrounded by the very smallest trees, she imagined that she had a place of her own there, a simple hut made of logs and raised on stilts so that it looked out into the woodland canopy. Inside it would be cool in summer and ever so cosy in the winter, and it would smell of sap and pine needles. Rowena sighed. 
She was too weak to go there and see if such a place existed, but it seemed real to her, and perhaps that was enough. She could see whatever she wanted, she had only to imagine it. Just then she heard the whir of tiny wings and a shadow tumbled across her eyelids. She opened her eyes to see a female black cap had landed near her feet. It was looking at her and hopping closer. Her mousy olive grey feathers were perfectly combed down her back and fluffed on her chest, and her fox brown cap somehow accented the beauty of her dark little eyes, like the blush of makeup. Good morning, little one, Rowena said. Would you like to be my friend? The bird fluttered up and then landed on the arm of her chair, close enough that if she but twitched her finger she'd be able to touch it. That was some kind of answer, she thought, so she kept on talking. You don't know how lucky you are. Wherever you wish, you can just dart through the air all the way to the woods, and you can perch in the highest tree or grub through the undergrowth at will. The black cap seemed to be listening to her, tilting her head so that it looked at her with one eye and then with the other. Alas, I cannot go there, but my dear little sweet friend, could you perhaps go there for me and bring me back something I could touch and smell and hold to my cheek? If you could only bring me a sliver of the silvery birch bark that glows in the moonlight, I would be overjoyed. The black cat bowed and with a little flicker she was in the air and fleeting away, bobbing up and down over the fields. Come back, Rowena called, but she was alone again with her thoughts. The whole incident had been a little out of the ordinary, and really quite a big thing in Rowena's world, where everything was so much the same and every tiny variation and detail was an event. Perhaps that is why she felt extra tired in the afternoon and had to lie in her bed and rest. Come the evening, she still felt too weak to get up. So her father, Algernon, asked for their supper to be brought to her room so that they could eat it together. He sat on the chair beside her bed, with a napkin on his lap, and a plate of bread precariously balanced while he lifted the bowl of soup to his chin and supped from the spoon, taking care not to get his whiskers wet. The housekeeper, Maisie, who doubled as a nurse, perched on the bed beside Rowena and helped her to the food. What was good about your day, sweetheart? He asked her. And this was a question they often asked of each other. Oh, the sunshine and the smell of the may blossom, and I made a new friend, she replied. Algernon felt a clench of grief in his chest for this reminded him of how lonely his daughter must be, with no friends to mingle with like most other youngsters had. This was one of the many concerns that vexed him, and for which he largely blamed himself. What dull companionship it must be for a girl of fifteen to have only her father and housekeeper to talk to. A new friend? he asked, a little puzzled. Yes, this morning I met a little black cap, she came right up to me, close enough to touch, and I'm sure she was listening to me. Oh, the black cap has the sweetest song. Did she sing for you? Maisie asked. 
No, but I shall ask her if she would sing for me, said Rowena. How delightful, said Algernon, but he didn't feel any better. He hoped his daughter might make other friends besides a bird. When they had eaten, Maisie took away their empty dishes, and Algernon read aloud to his daughter from a book of verse that they both loved. Rowena's breath came quietly and evenly as she lay back with her eyes closed. But when her father stood up to close the curtains, she opened her eyes and asked him to leave them open so she could see the moonlight on the silvery bark of the birch trees in the distant copse. Of course, my dear, but stay warm, it's still cold at night, he said, tucking the quilt around her and kissing her forehead. He returned to his study and the open book on his desk, an old medical journey. Tonight, and most nights, he stayed up late, combing through the pages by candlelight until his eyes gave out, desperately looking for just one clue that might offer some hope for his daughter's mysterious condition. The next few days were blowing, wet and blustery, so Rowena was confined indoors. She read and she sat by the big windows in the library of the old house. When she closed her eyes and listened to the rain being thrown by the bucket load at the windows, she imagined herself in her place, in the woods, with a companionable fire in the stove and the stout boughs of the walls defending her. The storms blew through eventually, and as soon as it brightened again, Rowena asked to be sat on the terraces where she could feel the sun on her face again. The land was already responding to the deep drink it had been given in the last few days, surging upwards in green growth, and the ground of the pastures was shaded with patches of yellow, primrose and buttercup, and the hedges put out the decorations of bindweed and dogrose. She noticed the birds dipping about with clutches of grass and twigs in their mouth, intent on securing their nests with the best materials available. She closed her eyes and felt the sun again on her eyelids and breathed the aroma of the wet grass. Suddenly she heard the whir of wings and felt a disturbance of the air around her cheeks. She opened her eyes and there, in her lap, lay a sliver of silvery birch bark, curled like a scroll and etched with lines. The black cap hopped about her feet and then came up onto the arm of the chair as before. Oh, you came back, she exclaimed. Thank you. She looked at the little bird with a deep love in her eyes. She knew there was something she'd intended to ask of her new friend when she next saw her, but her delight quite distracted her. She took up the piece of bark and brushed it against her cheek. Then she took a deep breath holding it under her nose so that the sweet, biscuity scent of it filled her lungs. The little bird hopped from one arm of the chair to the other as if to view her from a different angle. Thank you, my dear friend, said Rowena. This is a treasure indeed. She looked out upon the meadows and saw how the sunlight caught the drops of water on the blades of grass and the thousands of spider's webs stretched between them so that they seemed to be strewn with glittering jewels. To herself she sighed and murmured, 
How wonderful it would be to have a shining line of cobweb strung with pearls of dew. No sooner were the words out of her mouth than the black cap took off and sped away towards the meadows. A few minutes later it returned carrying a necklace of cobweb in its beak, strung with beads of water. It flew nimbly around her and dropped the loop over her head so that it fell in place around her neck. The ring of cool water seemed to rinse through her from the neck down, and the ache went from her limbs. Indeed, she felt suddenly so light and fresh, as if she would float out from the chair in which she was trapped. The black cap took up her stance by her arm and seemed to be waiting for another request. Little one, I would love to have a fiery blade of a pheasant's tail feather, all red and brown and fleckled, she said and her friend was off again, darting towards the copse and quickly lost her sight. Rowena saw no more of her that day, but felt sure that it was only a matter of time. She placed the birch bark on her nightstand where she could see and touch it whenever she wanted to. The wet cobweb melted in a few moments, but she could feel the memory of it cool on her skin, and that was always with her. Sure enough, her friend returned to her when the elders in the hedgerows were starting to put out great glowing heads of white blooms, attended by the constant fuss of insects and the dalliance of butterflies moved in the air above the meadows, and the little black cap brought her a tawny feather from the tail of a pheasant, dropping it into her lap as she sat in her usual place daydreaming of her cabin in the woods. There were colours in the feather that had never been captured in any picture book that she had read, and they shifted with subtle life as she twirled it in her fingers. What a handsome creature he must have been if this was just one of his feathers. The black cap for the first time hopped right up onto her arm, and her tiny throat pulsed with chirrups. You've been so good to me, said Rowena. I wonder if it is not too much trouble, and really there's no hurry, but you could perhaps bring me, when you next come, the skeleton of a fallen leaf, all veined like a leaded window, with a light shining through it. I hope you don't think I'm greedy to ask such a thing, she continued. But the black cap had flown already back towards the copse. And so, as the weeks deepened, the green shadows deepened in the copse, and the purple heads of knapweed and vetch spread out along under the hedges, and the sheep disappeared, and returned clean and suddenly lean, with their coats shorn off. Rowena looked forward to the visits of her friend, who never came empty-beaked, but brought her, one gift after another, whatever she wished for. I would dearly love, she said, a pin-cushion of corkish bracket fungus that keeps watch in the height of the wintering tree-tunks. And so it was delivered the very next day, so light and yet so enduring, its underside a labyrinth of pitted paws. Next, at Rowena's request, came the tiny bowl of a wren's egg when the chick has hatched out of it, a fragile relic of new life flown into the vast world. Then there was the dried ear of leathery fungus that marches upon the fallen branches and presides over the first dismantling of timber into soil. This was followed in due course with a gift of a mouse's bone 
picked clean by the discerning owl and washed pale by the meltwaters of spring. A hummock of moss arrived, glowing green with its own light, a miniature world unto itself, a jewel that Rowena could reach and caress as she lay in her bed. It came to summer. The sun was already hot and high even in the mornings by the time Rowena took her customary place on the terraces and waited to see if her friend would visit. A haze lay over the meadows and scintillated with the movement of insects. Could you bring me, please, a tiny and perfect older cone with its scales tightly wound, she said. A few days later, having dozed off for a few minutes, she woke to find a little green bead in her lap. Then one evening, in the long yellow light, the black cap delivered a ribbed acorn with a golden blush, standing proud in its tiny coracle. In late summer, the bird came to her with a brittle fiddlehead of bracken, dried and crisp, its once supple coil now a whispered memory of its unfurling. She knew the year was beginning to turn once again, and she'd soon be confined indoors on many days. If it's not too much trouble, I should also love to have a clutch of needles from the larches that ripen in autumn, she said. And so it came, a miniature sweeping brush of bright yellow spikes bound at their base. A pinch of wispy sheep's wool came next, collected from the snagging embrace of brambles, a soft cloud amongst the thorns. All these things she kept close in the growing collection at her bedside. She would wake to the smell of them in the air around her pillow, and if she kept her eyes closed, she could linger on the edge of sleep and visit her dream cabin in the heart of the copse. There were still some bright days left in the year that were warm enough for Rowena to sit out in the milky sunlight. On such an occasion her friend presented her with ten hawberries, burnt red orbs, with their skin beginning to darken and crumple. With each token of the woodland's bounty, Rowena felt the copse draw nearer to her thoughts, as if it was always in the periphery of her vision, wherever she might be. In the meantime, Algernon feared that he was getting further and further from the answers he sought in his books. He read every night until his mind was a flurry of papers, all covered in speculation and contradiction, a veritable blizzard he could not pierce, and he was lost. You see, he was a man whose primary language was numbers, which themselves lived in a world every bit as complicated and contradictory as medicine, to be sure, but they danced for him, and he could bend them to his will. Let us not be so quick to dismiss the art of the accountant, as some may call it dull, and others deceitful. There are indeed accountants both dull and deceitful, as in all walks of life, but the sacred and honourable work of counting things, and balancing the one against the other, is as old as the universe itself. And any one of us who has felt an uneasy sense that something is missing or does not add up, must give credit for that instinct to the primal accountant who is tangled within us as even our own bones are. And here's another thing to which those who write books seldom if ever attest. In nature itself, 
as in each of us, there is an accountant. Nature's accountant keeps a weather eye on all that is taken and all that is given, lost and gained, and all that should remain in equity. So it did not go unnoticed that an ear of fungus here, a feather there, and here again a tiny turf of moss was missing from the copse. Indeed, the copse began to feel in itself a little uneasy that something was not quite right. We don't really have a word for the felt absence of something as nature feels it, and reaches out for it with her soul. Perhaps it is a yearning. The copse yearned for the tiny things. The eggshell, the acorn and the older cone. It yearned towards the south towards the greater forest that lay beyond, but it didn't find what it sought. Then it yearned to the east, where the land fell away to the river, and all it found there was in its place. And when it yearned to the west, all the ditches and the pastures, the hedgerows and the lone oaks in their fields were settled. It did not sense the call of its own. But when the copse yearned towards the north, where the great house lay, built up in stone quarried from the side of the hill, there, somewhere over there it felt an urge, and it reached through the paths that the black cap's wings had cut in the air, and it saw too the returning traffic of Rowena's thoughts as she visited the copse in her imagination. It was a path trodden so clearly that the copse was in no doubt which way the lost things had gone. To an entity so full of various intelligences, which indeed the copse was, such information is available in the faintest breeze as can never be found in any or all of the libraries of the world, and thus it knew in its roots how Rowena felt, and of her plight, and it heard her whisper in the dark, Alas, my limbs are of no more use to me than if they were wooden and lying helpless like the roots of a tree. The lines of will and want, longing, desire and absence make wide paths in the air, and these can bring things near in thought even though they are far in distance. And by this same power, branches reach towards the sun and clinging tendrils find their way to their next hold. By this power, ivy mounts a wall and an acorn rolled into a deep crevasse roots and rises and becomes an oak. We know little about what governs the speed of such growth, but it is not as the books seem to say, for if the desire is very strong, then it may be very quick. And this was how it was that night. The copse made a determination in the consensus of its many minds that if the little girl could not come to it, then it would go to her. So under the moonlight it advanced imperceptibly, which is to say that no onlooker could say how it moved, but if they looked away for a minute and then looked back again, they would swear that it had moved. The shadow of the copse crept over the pale meadow, keeping to the hollows but thickening boldly, boldly wherever it gained ground, sending shoots forth all along its advancing border and covering the ground as it went. Eventually the copse drew close to the manor house, on reaching the doors and windows, it spread to flat its many palms against them, searching for a way in. 
Rowena lay asleep, peacefully and dreaming. In her dream she lay inside her woodland shelter. She was delighted with the dream. The earthy perfume of sap and pine dispersed into her senses. The darkness cradled her. Outside, the surrounding woodland was a deep, defensive moat that no harmful thing could pass. She stirred and felt for a few minutes like a swimmer on an undulating sea with the pull of sleep below her. But as consciousness fully claimed her, she still felt herself in the arms of the woods. If anything, the impression grew stronger. Although she was no longer wrapped in her dream, she was sure of that. She was surely no longer in her bedroom, either, though the wove of her sheets felt the same as it ever had. She reached in the dark to her nightstand and felt for the tokens she kept there. Her fingers met the bristle of moss she expected to find, but it felt damp and fresh, and across the surface of the nightstand she found living roots spreading. Am I awake? she asked out loud to the darkness, knowing in the same moment that she had never felt more awake. In fact, there was a vitality humming through her from her head to her toes, and that was strange and new, for until this moment, because of her illness, she'd never known her legs to be anything more than frail twigs and her feet to be weights that swung helpless at the end of them. Yet now they answered her when she wanted them to move. She pushed back the covers and swung her feet to the ground. They met not the floorboards but an uneven cushion of leaves and moss. At that moment the clouds high above melted before the face of the moon and pale light crept into the room. She saw the familiar dimensions of her bedroom and its furniture but everywhere hung and twined with the trappings of the wild. A great branch of oak reached above the lintel of her door. The ceiling had become a canopy of leaves and her dresser was outlined in ivy. Rowena rubbed her eyes and then stretched. When she breathed she could feel herself filling with air like a sheet filling with wind. Her body was a sail unfurling for the first time and catching the breeze. From her fingertips reaching high above her head down to her toes curling over the ridges of the roots on the floor, she felt it all and had complete control. This was a miracle of homecoming into herself. For the first time she could move her whole body at will rather than floating out of it in her imagination. She stood up and walked towards the door. Outside in the hallway the wild canopy persisted in the shadows. A thin threshold of light marked the doorway of her father's study. He must be in there with his books again. She wanted to call out to him to come and see, but half afraid that she might break the spell, instead she made her way towards the light, growing in confidence with every step, lifting her feet over the talons of roots across her path and feeling her weight go down into the soft crush of moss and lichen beneath. She reached the door. Algernon's eyes were heavy with sleep, and although he decided to go to bed an hour ago, he was still there with the words on the pages of some old tome dancing before his eyes and making little sense. Captured in the island of lamplight, he'd not noticed the vines that had crept over the window, 
or seen the branching invasion of woodland growth that had begun in the recesses of his study, but he'd begun to feel, although not for the first time, as if he was not alone. He heard a soft sound at the door and lifted his head. Who's there? he asked. The door swung open, and he saw his daughter framed by the moonlit woodland behind her. Her eyes like a doe's eyes were deep and filled with wildness, and her cheeks glowed. Her blue nightdress hung like the veils of a waterfall, and her hair was tangled with twigs. I can walk, she said. For Algernon, in that moment, the room seemed to collapse and spin, but in the centre of it all his daughter's face was steady and radiant, and he knew that this was real. He half rose from his seat, and she ran to meet him. She ran. You can run, he gasped, opening his arms wide to catch her. And so we shall leave them, a father embracing his daughter, standing amidst his old books, all overcome with new growth. The old house, at last at one with the woodland, and his daughter at home. <laughs>